0: Thank you so much. Great to see you all. Tonight, we, we say it's sort of summer, it's always a quiet time, but it doesn't seem very quiet to me. Um, so delighted to have you all here tonight. If we haven't met before, I'm Will van der Hart, I'm the associate vicar here. And um, if you're visiting the area over the summer, you're particularly welcome if you joined us. Uh, it's great to have you here for the first time. We're reading tonight from Colossians uh, chapter 1. And we're working through verse 15 just to 20. If you want to grab one of the green Bibles or check it out on your devices, um, we're just going to have a look at this text called The Supremacy of Christ. So, thank you. So it says, uh, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he may have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, And through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Well, over August, we decided to engage with some one-off questions. We're calling this glorious one-offs. And we're dealing with a few kind of hot topics And I I guess tonight, one of the key things I really want for you all is to have greater confidence uh, in uh, the reality of God. And and so we've entitled this talk, Is God Real? But I wanted to start off by suggesting that a better way of uh, describing this or engaging with this question is not asking, is God real? But is God realistic? Because the measurement by which we assess something to be real in the world is very human. It's defined by a very tight parameter of experience, we have to really recognize the fact that God defines himself, that his estimation of his reality is different to our estimation of his reality. We can look at the sun, for example, not advisably through a telescope, but you know, with, with, with some precaution, you can look at the sun, you know, millions of miles away, and yet you can estimate what it might be like to be near the sun or what's going on on the surface of the sun, but really the sun defines itself. We can assume that we know what it's like, but actually what it is like is very different to our assumptions. In the same way, saying, is God real, if you like, is a concrete estimation of our calculation on the basis of our terminology of reality, when actually God Orientates and defines his own reality we can only say is God realistic within the context of our experience and our estimation of what real is and what real isn't and so I guess the first principle is that God is not provable in a way that is is real and so accepting The inability to prove God's reality within our measurement of what real looks like is a gift to us because we stop trying to fulfil a sort of an agenda which other people have for us, which is like, "Show me God, and I'll believe you, and you know, we'll all be happy." You know, Jesus was wandering around in the first century as we see the image of the fullness of God, and yet lots of people just didn't believe He was He was God. Jesus fulfilled all sorts of the measures of God, and yet people still didn't believe that he was God. People saw the resurrected Jesus, but still didn't believe. You know, you, you, you know Jesus fed 5,000, know, resurrected Jairus' daughter. There'll still be people in the room going, yeah, yeah, this is, this is all a trick. So, so what I want to sort of help you to dispel the idea that if you could say God was real in your terms, everyone would believe that God was real. You know, there's lots of phenomena that are real that people still don't believe are real. And in a world filled with fake news, it's important that we recognize that only God can redefine really our reality. We can't. I wonder if you were watching uh, the news this week about Alex Jones and the Sandy Hook uh, judgment, a really important judgment for us to recognize in the context of a world where you can say whatever you want to say and dispute fact and get away with it. But it's important to recognise that even though Alex Jones has been indicted for something $52.5 million in reparatory payments to the parents of victims of the Sandy Hook massacre, people still believe what Alex Jones is saying, that actually Sandy Hook was some sort of staged CIA event and that the parents were actually kind of crisis actors in, in an attempt to you know, change the gun laws in America. Now, what, what I want to help you to recognise tonight, and, and we been treated to as an adult an experienced and knowledgeable community of people here is that the idea that god is provable and real in our estimation doesn't change the script for the world that ultimately god defines himself god defines his own reality and only in encounter with god can we have a revelation of the reality of god and so your christian faith cannot be forced upon others By a ha! Look, here he is. Okay, and I think we're at risk of that uh, in our society. The risk of driving. Protect me from your beautiful cello, lest I stand on it. (laughs) Um, So so just, you know, if you, if you like, the first thing I wanted, the first, the first principle is to wake up and smell the coffee about reality. You know, there's a significant contingent of people in the world at the moment who believe the world's actually flat. Now, people haven't really believed that for, for 400 years. And yet, despite having the technology and the experience of outer space, uh, and despite visiting the moon, there are a significant number of people who still believe that the world is actually flat and you could somehow fall off the end. Now, you're laughing because you think that that's ridiculous, but that's still people's encounter with truth in a post-truth world. And therefore, any attempt that you make to try and prove the world is round to people who believe it's flat generally falls on its face. Now, we have to grow up, and I'm not wanting to like, say that to you in a, in a patronizing way, but we have to grow up where truth is concerned in our world if we're going to be real agents of the gospel in terms of recognizing the way in which we need to engage with the reality of God in a way that is palatable for a post-truth generation. And that really means thinking much more about the self-definition of reality in God himself. So I I trust God to define my reality. And that's really oppositional to a very, very self-orientated and narcissistic central outlook, which is common to us in our generation and generations, because we've been taught that my estimation of the truth is what's true, rather than any sort of objectivity of truth which is actually true. So what's more important to our generations is the idea that I found truth rather than truth has been revealed to me. And therefore you can, by ontological outworking, create a reality which isn't true, convince many people of it, and collectively, in your own echo chamber, keep propagating those same ideas to the point which everyone goes, oh yeah, of course... The world is flat. Or of course Sandy Hook didn't really happen, or whatever it is that you want to propagate. And so I want us to kind of tonight get into, into the meat of something which is philosophically powerful and significant, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So this is this is a statement of sort of of incarnational truth. Just looking at that, sorry, I'll pick that out of Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So this is a kind of this, this principle of revelation that in Jesus we see like a lens on God's own character. We'll come into that through uh, Colossians 1. He is the image, verse 15, of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So principle one is that God is not provable. Principle two is invisible is not improbable. And it seems again the, the kind of the trick of the enemy to convince us into the work of trying to prove God is real, and in so doing, somehow undo our own philosophical credibility. Now I'm not saying we have credibility. You know, philosophically, what I'm saying is, is that God gives us credibility through a revelation of himself through his son. And our best game, you know, our best card in debate is not being busy trying to show a revelation of God, a visible res- revelation of God. That's not actually helpful. Our best game is to demonstrate the nature and character of Christ in us because that actually speaks of Christ, who speaks of God. That's, that's perceptive. That's experiential. And that's exactly where these generations are at today. Show me God and I won't believe him. Let me experience or encounter God. That's cool. Now I'm really interested. So invisible is not improbable. And there are many things which we cannot see but accept, exist both in matter and force. Now obviously air is invisible but it's still quantifiable. We know that we're experiencing it because we're all still breathing and none of us here are hopefully suffocating. So we know we know it's present by its action on us in our ability to live, and we know its absence when we're struggling to breathe or devoid of it, because then it has a direct effect on our experience. But forces in a way are even more interesting when we think about invisible power because the force of gravity is something we're all currently experiencing, but it cannot be quantified since it's not substantial. It's conceptual. So whilst we feel gravity, gravity is not a thing like air is a thing. Gravity is not made of molecules. Gravity is an experience that has significant power, because no matter how hard I jump, I will always return to the ground. So in terms of understanding God or recognizing God in terms of qualifiable force we know God through his action but we cannot quantify him through his quality if you like how we cannot substantiate God but that's also why the why the incarnation is so interesting that God becomes substantive and makes his dwelling amongst us so I, I find this sort of this this is really valuable for you guys to think about that an invisible God becomes substantive in the person of Jesus Christ. So you suddenly start saying to, uh, you know, a very um, skeptical generation, yes, God is invisible, lots of things are invisible, gravity is invisible, and yet still is real. God is invisible, yet I still believe it's realistic to believe in God. But what if gravity became substantive? What if you could catch gravity in a bag, and then demonstrate what gravity really is? Now, Jesus is substantive God so what we see in Colossians is a revelation of the invisible God made substantive through this incredible incarnation moment and so we have both invisibility and we have availability and that really matters you know, just the, the, the reasonableness or the realistic nature of God is, you know, exists in this kind of Quality between nothingness and absolute being. There's sort of the the emptiness, the the devoidness of the. Come on, God, if only you would kind of come out of my bag, which is obviously empty. You know, so I have an empty bag. I really want God to fill it because you know then I can like reveal God. You know, imagine you know being able to to put your hand in and and, you know actually pull God out. You know, it would be a total miracle if. If you, could, if you could sort of find God in your empty bag and just be like, oh, you know, how did that happen? But, but the, the, the fact is that, that the invisibility of God becomes visible, substantially visible in the incarnation. So God suddenly goes from nothing, where are you, to something, to being present in the person of Jesus. And that's exciting, but also realistic. If you think about the kind of age-old idea of God as this sort of grey-haired, wise old man, or Morgan Freeman even, uh, on, in, in a sort of in a throne on a cloud somewhere in the sky, if I showed you that, would that be probable or improbable? How would you feel if you saw it? Would it be real or fake? It would feel fake. It would feel ridiculously fake because because we ascribe to God all of these unique features. Omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience. this ability to be everywhere and anywhere all at one time. And so to make the invisible God substantive, in a cosmic sense, is to limit God and diminish him to a point when he becomes a parody of himself. Now, actually, the old man on cloud is a cloud is an idea that diminishes God, that doesn't elevate God. So longing to find the old man on a cloud is a way of is a reductionism. It's, 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 it's a diminishment. And if you showed him to people who believe the earth is flat, they would just laugh in your face. It's just another example of weirdness. Like, actually, God's invisibility is part of his realism. Is it realistic to believe in a God who is like an old man on a cloud? No. Is it realistic to believe in an invisible God who can be omnipresent and omnipotent? Yes, absolutely, because he cannot be contained aside from his own creation, and that's why the incarnation is so significant, because he makes himself available in physical form, as a sign to bring all of the majesty and splendor and curiosity of the cosmos present to our experience. So, principle two is invisible, is not improbable. In fact, significantly, I believe, realistic. Principle three is that the idea of God is still more realistic than an alternative view. So, there are many alternative views about the cosmos... And we are schooled in those alternative views. And what I find quite interesting is the the idea that Christians have a sort of limited knowledge, that Christians are generally foolish, and that they've suspended all sort of scientific understanding for the sake of some sort of hocus-pocus idea. But, but, you know, if I've really got an empty bag, can I really create something ex nihilo? Now, I thought it was very interesting reading Professor Brian Cox, who who remembers D. Ream, am I the only one, who remembered that Brian Cox was originally in a great pop band when I was at school. Uh, But he's actually gone on to become quite a popular and rather a good scientist, I think. And, And recently he stated that life on other planets is unlikely to exist because the chances of sophisticated life evolving like humans is simply too low. Now, let's not think for a minute that Professor Brian Cox has got uh, any sort of faith. He hasn't. But, But he simply believes statistically that aliens or extraterrestrial beings or life on other planets is simply improbable because the evolution of human species and life on this planet are themselves entirely improbable. He suggests that it took 3.8 billion years for life to evolve, and that's actually a third of the age of the universe suggested, which is 13.8 billion years. So he said, if it takes a third of the age of the entire universe for humans to evolve, it's then highly improbable, but these circumstances could be manifest anywhere else. Because if you're like, it's it's just too improbable that life could have been initiated in any other setting in time, in order that life could be generated in the way it's been generated here, you see, there's not enough time on the clock, and and Professor Brian Cox is is also at loggerheads with some mathematicians who suggest that actually their estimation of the age of the Earth is probably slightly, um, you know, long, slightly old potentially because the initial acceleration of the Earth's uh, or the universe's expansion has been slowing down. So it's not been, if you like, expanding at the same speed for time. And so people who, mathematicians who believe that actually this process might have been more expansive and more dramatic than he thinks put them at log ahead with the evolutionary timescale because suddenly the universe isn't old enough to create life as we see it. Now, I'll be absolutely frank with you. I'm not a seven-day creationist. And that's not because it couldn't happen. It's just because I don't believe the, the genesis is trying to tell us that. I believe Genesis is trying to tell us some very unique things about the nature of God and his character in an ancient Near Eastern worldview which believed that God was essentially bad and probably wanted to have sex with people and eat them for breakfast. And, you know, there's a great revelation to show that that isn't true. So I believe, if you like, in intelligent design, I believe that behind the creation, however it came to being, is, is a good and benevolent God. Now... Is that realistic? Well, it seems to me, if I've got nothing in my bag, nothing has to create nothing for it to become something, and that seems quite improbable. It seems much more likely that if I've got nothing in my bag and I'm a something, and I'm then trying to create something out of nothing, I'm much more likely to be able to create something, since you know, I'm actually here to create something from my empty bag. So, Whilst it is completely empty, if I'm, if you like, in this illustration acting as an agent, as you know, in agency as God, it seems to make much more sense to me that I, as a benevolent force in this bag of universe, am actually pulling something created out of that bag even though there's nothing in the bag. Whereas it seems highly improbable that I just put this bag down and leave it for 3.8 billion years in the hope that we will crawl out of that bag at some point in the future, because that doesn't seem to me any more realistic. In fact, it seems to me far less realistic than what's just happened. See, the case for God as creator makes sense in science, because ultimately, at the end of the science conversation, is still a faith conversation. And and that's really important that we as Christians don't get diminished and patronized into the suggestion that we're all party to some sort of hocus-pocus fairy tale that makes stuff up that doesn't have anything to do with science. The fact is, at the end of the science story are all sorts of interesting hocus-pocus fairy tales. We've got to ask ourselves which ones are more realistic. And if nothing can create nothing out of nothing and provide something, then I'm, I'm obviously a donkey speaking to you right now. But if something can create something out of nothing, that's still improbable, but it's far less improbable than nothing creating something out of nothing. Does that make sense? It doesn't make sense to me, but anyway. So, what we see in the text here, again, is Paul in Colossians, he's expressing this Reality For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So, it, you know, ultimately it doesn't matter whether we believe in, a, you know, short-life creationism or whether we believe in an evolutionary model, whether we believe in a kind of intelligent design. Ultimately, what we're saying is in origin... Where is God in your story? And it's very convenient to edit God out of the origin story. Because if you do, you kind of like just do whatever you want. But it's a cheap trick, isn't it? Just to be like, yeah, nothing. Just no, there was nothing and nothing and nothing. And then suddenly there's something. So there's no one to be accountable to. You know, it's, it's just a cheap trick. Like at the end of the day, whatever you think about God, origin is origin. And therefore, origin requires us to begin to relate and say well what meaning does this have what what relevance does this have given the fact that God has origin so that's really important principle number three the idea of God is still more realistic than an alternative principle four is that Jesus make God, makes God's supernatural action plain so you know again this is difficult for non-Christians, because we talk about origin, and they're like, oh, yeah, I kind of get that, you know, God, long way off, you know, power, sort of benevolent power. Lots of people actually think, yeah, that's okay. They kind of like the idea of an unknown benevolent power behind the universe, but he's got to be a really long way off, because if he gets any closer, then that's going to make me feel uncomfortable and, and accountable. So... When we're having the conversation about, is God real? Remember, we're moving into, is God realistic? Then a lot of people are like, oh yeah, I kind of like the idea of a theism, That is a kind of God origin story. But I just don't like the idea of God getting very close to me, because it gets a bit icky. And then I've got to suddenly relate to God. But what's really powerful and significant, what we've said already, is that God, if you like the long way off origin story, comes near in the message. It says, is that... Um, is that the word became flesh and moved into my neighborhood. Thank you, Ross. Yeah, which I really like. Because it's just, oh, oh, no. You know, it's taken away all the spirituality of the language and all the otherness of the language. And, you know, the word became flesh and moved into my neighborhood. That's, ah, that's far too close to me. That doesn't feel good. I feel like, oh, that's awkward. Now I've suddenly got to work out how I relate, not to the theists, but how I relate to the personal encounter with a God who has made himself known to me through uh, his, his son Jesus. So, in verse 17, we see um, that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And I think this is really important because, again, in terms of Trinitarian theology, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have a sense, and again, issued in Genesis 1, that... that, that, that god is both three and one hovering over the waters you know this sort of issuing part of creation god isn't alone you know they, they use the plural in the genesis story because god is 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 more than one and yet he's a unity but also he's in three there's, there's three co-relating beings father son and holy spirit the, the the message of the trinity is not some sort of made-up stuff you know someone didn't suddenly one day go oh I know what we should do let's make up God as being three hearts, and then that will make sense of a load of different stuff now evidence of God being the three is all the way 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 back in Hebraic scr- scriptures so you know we have this sort of evidencing that Jesus was there at the start of creation at the start of this story but that everything holds together in him and so what we find is not that Jesus is just a a sort of mirror or, or a little pictogram of what God is like but Jesus comes with the fullness of the power of God in incarnational form and this is really difficult to comprehend I think but it's also really really powerful and really significant because the massive out there cosmological God suddenly turns up in in here you know in your neighborhood now if that's the case then God can do in Jesus what he can do in the cosmos, but within certain limitations. So he's limited by his geography for the first time in his history, which is in itself remarkable. But he's chosen to limit himself in order that he can demonstrate the same traits of God in the immediate. And he does this um, in essence by his miracles. So the first thing is the creation miracles. So Jesus can create ex nihilo. He can create, if you like, out of nothing. You know, he's, got, he's got nothing. He can create something. So he's, he's got water. He can create wine. He's got a couple of loaves and fishes. He can feed 5,000 people. So you see Jesus you know, creating. So he's got the same creative power as God. Then we've got the power miracles. So we hear in, uh, in 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 the next chapter, he's the head of the body of the church. That's beginning of the force, firstborn amongst the dead. Um, sorry, he, in verse sixteen again. Uh, so he's created overall things, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. So you've got a reference there to the demonic. So you've got Jesus exercising authority over legion and the demons saying, who are you, Lord? Or no, have mercy on me, Lord. So they acknowledge his presence. So we've got a sort of supernatural encounter, the power miracles. Then we've got the healing miracles, blind Bartimaeus, you know, the man, paralyzed man through the ceiling. And then we've got the nature miracles, Jesus commanding the storm to be still. And then we've got the life miracles, Jesus issuing life. So Jairus' daughter or Lazarus being raised from the dead. So everything that God does cosmologically suddenly is manifest within Jesus. The incarnation is like the cosmological power of God held in the person of Jesus Christ. Just a a geographical limitation. The incarnation is a limit, but it's also an expression. And so Jesus, in the local, in the immediate, can enter into our circumstance, and, and he too, in the same way that God creates... Creates. And, and, and still the bag is empty. Because, you know, at the end of the day, God creates, God creates, Jesus creates because Jesus is God. You know, and, and it's really not that weird if you think about it. Because if we really believe the incarnation is the incarnation, then Jesus should be able to manifest the same power that God manifests. And Jesus does manifest the same power that God manifests. Therefore, what we see is a revelation of God in Jesus and revelation of Jesus in God. And that's really powerful. Because when people say, well, show me God, I'll show you Jesus. And when people say, show me Jesus, well, I'll show you God as far as I'm able because God, remember, is invisible. And I want you to have confidence in this principle of the empty bag because actually it's in its emptiness that it's full. You know, it's in, it's in its otherness that we find its authority. Principle four is that Jesus makes God's supernatural action plain. It's like, okay. So we suddenly go, oh, I see a revelation of God now in Jesus. I see how God has acted in creation, and I see how Jesus is being an expression of God's fullness here amongst us. Therefore, what I have is evidence both of God and also I have an evidence that Jesus is of God. That's great. So people who worship God are now left with a big question, is if you worship God, why don't you also worship Jesus? Seeing as Jesus is the only one who really manifests the evidence of relationship with God. Does that make sense? So people, if people ask you, why do you worship Jesus, why don't you worship leaders of other faiths? That's a good question, right? Do you find yourself sometimes wondering how do you answer that question and think well I you know surely everyone's equal well weirdly not because when you look at it Jesus is the only one who is doing any of the things that God is himself is doing and and oddly none of the other gods are actually claiming to do any of the things that God is doing I was a teacher once and I used to teach world religions and it was fascinating and I'd go to different religious establishments and and hear what they had to say and there's lots of great stuff there but no one was saying our our god our person our prophet raised people from the dead no one said that no one said that our god actually died and then rose from the dead that's definitely no and and even the sort of healing stuff it was more like you know lots and lots of mystery and lots of wisdom loads of wisdom there's lots of great wisdom in other religions loads of great wisdom very interesting but no one's making these kind of claims. In fact, to make the claim that your prophet person or your leader person bears any resemblance to God in itself can be a blasphemy. So when you say, Why do I worship Jesus? Well, I worship Jesus because here in the scriptures it says that by him all things were created things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. So they were created by God and for Jesus and through Jesus for God. That's the weird, interpenetrating nature of the Holy Trinity, the empty bag. So if you want to say, why do I worship Jesus? Is God real? Well, God's realistic because of these features. And Jesus is realistic because why worship anyone else? No one else is making any of these claims. And no one's demonstrated any of this power. That gives me quite a lot of confidence. Just a couple of things before I land. Principle five is that thrones, dominions, rulers, and powers exist. Now, the dark triad, if you like, is narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism. Um, we won't spend too much time on those because <laughs> they're not very pleasant. <laughs> but um, but when, you think about, when you think about the sort of the bag of evil... That we, ...that we exist in... ...the bag of evil that we see in the world around us... ...is proof of the nature of God himself. And this is true in philosophy. I mean, if you, if you do any work with Kant... you ...look at the kind of nature of proving good... ...you see that good is only proved in the absence of... ...badness. And badness is only proved in the absence of good. We only define badness or evil... ...through the lack of what should be demonstrated as good. So if you think about it in terms of humidity... 100% humidity is possible. It's like, you know, you're basically at the bottom of the swimming pool. It's all water. And then 0% humidity is also provable. It's the absence of any water. You, know, you can only experience it through the lack of the good stuff. And, and evil can really be only qualified philosophically through the absence of good. You, know, you can't say, well, that's, that's evil unless you have something to compare that evil to, which is something that's not evil. And obviously, people say, well, "Well, well, evil's, evil's, you know, relative. It's a relative experience. It's relative until they experience evil, and then suddenly it's not relative anymore. You know, when we experience or when we see evil, it's suddenly not relative anymore. It's, it's absolute. And our world continues to manifest evil. And people of every culture, every tribe, every tongue, every faith can acknowledge what evil is. They don't need to be re-educated in evil." You can meet tribes, people separated from you know, the, the global cohort who are still living, if you like, anthropologically disconnected from our socialized experience and they'll still tell you what evil is. They don't need to be reminded of it. They might have strange practices that we might think are slightly... or they might have strange practices that we think are bad, but a manifestation of evil is still a manifestation of evil. And I know lots of Christian leaders who came to faith because they encountered evil. I didn't say much about this to the kids this morning, obviously. Um, but, but I want to say to the pr- that principle five is that actually a manifestation of evil is a revelation of truth. And any manifestation of evil as an absolute is, points to reality of the existence of ultimate good, which can be only described as God himself. And since this, again, is not substantive, it's, if you like, principled and force-orientated. It's not something you can just qualify. You can't say, oh, well, here's a bag, you know, I've got a bag of evil. Like, oh, yeah, and everyone can all agree, all oh, this is evil. And yet, collectively, we all within us echo to the reality of the proved nature of the existence of evil. So we can have any, any one of us could observe the scene and describe it as evil. We don't need a shared narrative to do that which all points to the reality that at some point and in some way, we are all connected to ultimate good. Because if we weren't connected to ultimate good, we would never be able to define what evil even looks like. No one's confused about evil. And even children who've been incredibly damaged and unsocialized from a normal context can still describe what evil looks like. And even people who are in prison because they carry the dark triad of narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism can still tell you what evil is. They'll tell you that they like evil and that they want to do a bit more evil, but they certainly tell you what evil is. And that's really, really important in terms of definition, because others will tell you that evil is a socialized construct. But in human history, evil's never been socialized. Evil is as evil does. And so recognizing, again, principle five, that evil exists, is to acknowledge with sound reason that it's realistic to believe that ultimate good also exists, and that's God himself. Two more principles. I know I'm running out of time. i you're not running out of patience. I haven't got anything else coming out of my bag right now, by the way. <laughs> principle six, I know, sorry. <laughs> principle six is that through Jesus, God reconciled himself to us by making peace through his blood on the cross. Now... Everything I've said so far is power-orientated. So this is a demonstration of ability. These are, this is evidencing. But, but there's something very significant about character. What I need to know about God is not just that he has power, but that he has character. And so when I look at the crucifixion, why is the crucifixion important? The crucifixion does two things. It acknowledges both God's creative power the power and his ability to create, to bring life out of death, but also it references his character, and that is his willingness to do that work. So two very, very important things to have to sit together. God doesn't kind of... God isn't urgent to save for the sake of demonstrating his power. He doesn't need to demonstrate his power. God is urgent to save because he needs to demonstrate his character of love, because love does... That's it. <laughs> love does. Love does. Because action follows intent. And because love does, God saves. So you can't love without doing. Love is, a, is, a, is a, an emotion and a response. And so what you see is both power and character demonstrated through the crucifixion. So why do we believe the crucifixion is important? Again, conservative evangelicals, no, no beef with them, what they do is they tend to over I believe, on power, because what they want to do is sort of prove that, if you like, the equation of sin versus Christ equals redemption and reconciliation. You can't get away from that. That's really, really important sometimes charismatic, over-focus on character. Oh, God, so love-loving. God loves you, man. You know, wow, let's experience God's love, so cool, amazing. So we're over here with the sort of, you know, all in the kind of mist of love. Now, really what we need to do is co-join these two really important features and say the character of God, love of God, and the power of God. It all works right here. Character and power. And actually, if it's true, In the crucifixion, it's true in cosmology. It's true across the universe. And that's really inspiring. Because God didn't just kind of create like some sort of divine scientist. Not saying wrong scientists, God created out of love. And that's what we believe in Trinitarian theology, because if you think about this in what this we call this sort of holy dance, that you've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in a kind of circle. And as they are wrapped up together in mutual love and affection, the overspill of their love is to create. It's not, an, it's not a need. God is not a sort of divine narcissist who needs to create people to love him. God is the divine lover and out of his incredible overspill of love and mutuality, we are created. And then we're created and welcomed into this spiral of love and affection. And that, that isn't just evidence in the crucifixion it's evidence in the creation see I'm not really interested in heaven if it's just all a sort of transactional experience, do you know what I mean like I've got my stamp your name's not down, you're not coming in son oh yeah no I've got mine, yeah I'm in you know, that's not what I'm thinking heaven's going to be like, it's not like a lineup of people are in and the people are out um, that's not what it's about you, do, you sort of get in and go oh phew, glad I got past the bouncers uh, you know It's like we're going to be wrapped up in a supernatural cauldron of love with God. And it's going to be multifaceted experience. So we're going to experience the multidimensional nature of God's love, which goes beyond a time continuum. That means we're going to experience all of history in the universe in immediacy. It's going to be quite confusing. But we'll have the capacity to do that because we're living multidimensionally. We become spirit and encounter God in fullness. And then suddenly we're outside of this linear experience. Just as Jesus in the incarnation was limited, so we're limited. But when we are resurrected, we'll be unlimited in union with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's exciting to me. Now, that's not unreasonable. This is all good science. This is all metaphysical science that we can accept. So, you know, I'm saying is God reasonable, not is God real? I'm saying is is this a reasonable phenomenon? Yes, this is a reasonable phenomenon if we believe in the supernatural. So, through God reconciles himself to us, making peace through his blood on the cross. The reality of God's character is best manifest through the crucifixion, since it's the ultimate expression of goodness. We've talked about evil. This is goodness. This is the ultimate expression of God's goodness. And finally, sorry, it's been a long, a long evening. Finally, God is evidenced through the ongoing encounter of the church with the power of the Holy Spirit. It seems to me that if there is an ability for me to show you the nothing something of God in the bag, it's in the ongoing encounter of the church with the supernatural God that actually the holy spirit brings confidence to the people of god in ongoing encounter with supernatural things now again it seems incredible that the world both accepts the supernatural largely in you know in terms of i believe in sort of more than just biology and yet denies religious supernatural experience as a sort of group effect Now, I have no doubt there is group effect in the life of the church sometimes. I'm not going to deny that. Some people hype stuff up. That's reality. You know, that's okay. I mean, I don't like it, but that's what sometimes goes on. I have a lot of background in the psychological world. I know I can pull all sorts of fancy tricks to make people feel like things are supernatural. Believe me, I try really hard not to do any of that. If I ever do, (laughs) criticize me, admonish me. You know, I'm always trying to normalize the things of the spirit on one level, I can't escape the reality of the Holy Spirit when he's at work, and I particularly can't escape that reality through words of knowledge and pictures, which really have no basis or origin other than in God himself, who brings revelation. You know, we can speak in tongues, maybe. We can force some gifts, maybe. We can jump around a bit. We can lie on the floor. Some of that's authentic. Sometimes maybe it's, it's not as authentic as we might like it to be. I cannot get away from the revelation of prophecy, we cannot get away from the gift of the Spirit in, in bringing unique revelation, which is unknowable. And we cannot get away from the reality of healing. Now, I've got to be honest, I haven't got a healing gift. but I, I have encountered healing in my ministry probably five times in 20 years. And every time it's happened, one time very, very visually, I've been like the flat earth people, kind of going, this is not happening. This is not true. I'm seeing this and I'm physically experiencing this, but it's just not real. So I'm like in my world of doubt, despite seeing something which is supernaturally happening. Now, in our encounter with the Holy Spirit ongoing, we see evidence of everything that I've described thus far, and that's why we're charismatic Christians. It's not just that we're trying to evidence God, it's that we are living in full encounter with God as far as is possible now, because all of this is proving, evidencing, and part of a greater relationship which we exist within. Amen. <laughs> yeah, hallelujah. Whew, so glad I got to the end of that one. <laughs> right. Why don't we stand? Let's pray. Why don't you open your hands uh, as a sign, as, 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 a, as a welcome, I think, to the supernatural God that we've been talking about right just now. And this is invite the Holy Spirit to come. And um, I, I think there's two things to pray for tonight: confidence. Confidence in, in, in the uh, realistic claims that we're making as Christians. And also encounter, encountering the supernatural God of history, who's part of our story today. Jesus, we just want to reverence you. We want to honor you as the fullness of the manifest power of God. And um, we acknowledge all that you did during your ministry on earth the power miracles, the healing miracles, the deliverance miracles—that the fullness of God dwells and dwelt in you—and yet you were limited in your incarnate state. And uh, we we recognise that you created ex nihilo out of nothing, but that nothing didn't create nothing; something created nothing. No, something created out of nothing. Something incredible. We just want to thank you, Lord, for our confusion. Expand our minds, Father, tonight to, to the confidence of what you've already done. And we want to pray now for just an encounter with your Holy Spirit to um, affirm us in our confidence, in the clarity of our minds around the revelation of who you are, but also just, to, just, just the simple revelation of your supernatural power. We want to pray in our lives for eyes to see what you're doing, for gifts to be released amongst us, gifts of prophecy, gifts of word of knowledge, gifts of healing, uh, gifts of deliverance, the gift of tongues. We want to pray, Lord, that you'd release gifts to your church and that we'd see your church again manifesting the supernatural signs of the incoming kingdom of God. Come Holy Spirit. just wait in the quiet for a moment for the Lord, because I know the Lord is here already just wait for the lord just to 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 do what he wants to do in our lives tonight come holy spirit come holy spirit it's okay to doubt by the way just if you if you doubt it's okay don't let doubts block you from encounter just just be like, Lord, I doubt, but I just I want to believe. So help my unbelief, Lord. Help my unbelief. Increase your presence, Father. You can see the Spirit of God just moving on a few people right now. If that's you, just ask for more. Just say, Lord, I want more. I want more. I want more of what you're doing. More of you, Jesus. more of you Lord, yes, yes Father, increase your presence, I really feel the Lord wants tonight, he's going to build a confident church for for September, he's like, you know, this is going to, he's building a confident church for Parsons Green, it's part of our mission, he wants us to be on the front foot, building confidence amongst us, come Holy Spirit. If you're equipped to pray, I'd love it. If you're just, you know, you'd like prayer tonight, we want to pray. And if, if some leaders are just going to be down the right-hand side of the room, and we're going to worship a little bit more. But just if you just feel like, I just want more, I want to encounter the supernatural God, if that's your prayer, then we want to pray for you. If you're encountering the Lord and you just want more, if there's specific gifts you think you, you're longing for, then let's pray for those. And if it's just, just deep confidence in, in what I've said tonight, then let's pray for that too. But let's spend time, let's not rush away. You know, we've got we've got 15 minutes or so we can spend just in ministry. And, and I, I invite you to sit or stand as you feel the Lord is leading you. But um, let's press in right now as we worship. And we're going we're gonna to have some space to pray for you. Don't hesitate to come and receive prayer.